Thanks for joining us today on Mormonland, where we explore news in and about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm senior religion reporter Peggy Fletcher Stack. I'm joined by managing editor David Noyce, who oversees our faith coverage. Hi, Dave. Hi, Peggy. We invite you, our listeners, to show your support for Mormonland by going to patreon.com, where with a small donation you can access all of the Tribune's religion coverage, transcripts to our podcasts, and the Mormonland newsletter. Again, that's patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com, forward slash Mormonland. Now for today's show. Many members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints complain about the fact that there's no expansive or universal celebration of Easter in their religion. While much of Christendom builds up to the holiest day of their calendar with <clears throat> preparation rituals like Lent or immersive traditions such as waving palms on Palm Sunday, washing feet on Monday, Thursday, or carrying a large cross for Good Friday, Latter-day Saints have no accepted traditions for Easter. Some have begun to develop their own way of commemorating Easter with prayers, readings, and discussions. Eric Huntsman, a Brigham Young University professor of ancient scripture, has spent his career reading biblical texts in their original languages. Huntsman, who is currently the academic director of BYU's Jerusalem Center, has just published a book with Trevin Hatch called Greater Love Hath No Man, a Latter-day Saint guide to celebrating the Easter season. Eric, welcome. Thank you, Peggy. Peggy David, it's always great to be here and speak with you. So how did you get interested in ancient scripture? <laughs> so it's interesting. I got interested in ancient languages and then classics and then back to ancient scripture. I was raised to be a doctor or a lawyer. And I was a chemistry pre-med major and had a head-on collision with calculus and realized that wasn't going to happen. I had a freshman history of civ teacher, Wilfred Griggs, who was in ancient studies, who I really enjoyed. And so the semester before I served my Larry St. Mission, I was going through the honors catalog just trying to find something to do as I was trying to find a new major. Because my, my schedule looked like physical science, American heritage, biology. It was just so boring. So Hugh Nibley was teaching as an emeritus faculty a Pearl Great Price class. I signed up for that. And Wilfred was teaching this Greek through the New Testament class. It was five credits of honors Greek and two credits of New Testament. And so I did that mostly because I like Professor Griggs and I like the ancient world. And I had spent my last couple years of high school in Jackson, Tennessee, surrounded by born-again Christians. And so I was really into Jesus. I thought, well, this will be great. And I fell in love with Greek. So I ended up changing my majors, much to my father's chagrin, to classical Greek and Latin. <laughs> and he was so worried. I kept saying, I can always go to law school. I can always go to law school. But I ended up going to the University of Pennsylvania and doing a degree in ancient history. And my first nine years after I was hired by BYU in 1994 is actually in classics. So I taught Greek and Roman history, Greek and Latin language and literature. It wasn't until 2003 uh, George Durant, Andy Skinner, and Richard Holtzaffel kind of recruited me <coughs> to switch and transfer from classics over to ancient scripture. And it turned out, well, that class I'd had with Wilfred Griggs was learning Greek through the Gospel of John. And I fell in love with the Gospel of John, which is my main thing I study now. And so I kind of came full circle. Once I moved to religious education in 2003, I started researching and writing about John. But that kind of evangelical zeal I had for Jesus from my high school age was still there. <laughs> and so I started doing the Gospels in depth and particularly anything to do with the salvific, the saving work of Jesus. 
So what languages uh, do you know? Well, of course, that's always a loaded question. When you say no, how well do you know them? So Greek and Latin were undergraduate majors. I taught those. So that those are the languages I'm most proficient in. I only picked up some biblical Hebrew and now some modern Hebrew and Arabic just kind of along the way. So Greek and Latin are, the, are my working languages. I'd served a Latter-day Saint mission in Thailand, so I speak Thai, now that that helps with biblical studies. <laughs> in grad school, we had to take German, French, and Italian reading exams so I can, you know, make a fool of myself in Rome and Paris and that kind of thing. I can actually make my way with German. And as I said, I'm kind of working in modern Hebrew and Arabic now. But anyway. So how did this <laughs> how did this language study help you or prepare you for work on the Bible? Well, I'll tell you, my, my experience as a classics professor, I think, really, really did help. Because even though my major authors there were historians like Herodotus and Thucydides, and I taught Homer, and I heard, taught Virgil, we learned what we call in classics philological method which is you don't just translate it word for word. You really study the semantic range of meanings of those words, and you learn to read text as literature, not just isolated passages. You have to see how that passage fits into the whole epic of the Iliad, right? And so when I did move to ancient scripture, kind of escaped what we're sometimes pre-programmed to do, which is read scripture, you know, verse by verse. That's the way they're formatted in our scriptures. That's the way we mark them. And we tend to do something we call proof text, and we pull passages out of context. They teach our theological point. But my classics background had taught me, you have to read the whole gospel of John and see how that miracle story or that teaching fits into the author, the evangelist's kind of agenda, you know. And so I, I started reading scripture, I think, a lot more comprehensively. So I, I believe it's inspired. I, I believe it's the source. It's normative for our religion. But I also believe it's literature. I will often tell my students, inspiration is not just what prophets and apostles write. It can be how they write it. Because I think the way we read a text or how we hear a sermon really affects how we receive it. And if I can use a Latter-day Saint example, we all remember, well, most of us old enough to remember Neil Maxwell, you know, the way he spoke just affected how you heard it. And I think sometimes Gordon Hinckley, President Hinckley, you know, is such a, he was the prophet when I was really formative as a young adult, but I think he didn't always receive the kudos he should have as a rhetorician. I mean, he's actually an amazing speaker and he admired it in classics, by the way. <laughs> and so I really do think the way someone speaks or writes can be as inspired as the substance. Does that make any sense? Mm -hmm. So at a football game, you wouldn't hold up a John 3.16 sign. You would be holding up, no, read I would, the whole gospel of John. <laughs> well, I would hold up, you know, the dialogue with Nicodemus in John 3, which is part of the book of signs, which is the first 10 chapters of the book of John. You know, I would contextualize it, right? <laughs> It'd be a very long sign. Well, well that's yeah. why I don't hold up signs at football games. So, so <laughs> how did this book come about, Eric? So this book is a revision, a substantial revision and expansion of an earlier work I had done in 2011. So if you don't mind, if I go all the way back to actually 1996. Yeah, so that's, that, was, that was God So Loved the World, yeah, right? Yeah, so God okay. So Loved the World was a much shorter book, but it was this idea of providing Latter-day Saints a scriptural treatment of the last week of Jesus' life. And I had organized it with, with eight chapters, one for each day, Palm Sunday through Easter Sunday. Um, and it was, a, it was a work of love, but it actually had an interesting background itself. <laughs> so we had gotten out of grad school in 1994, Elaine and I. We didn't have children at the time. We moved to West Provo, about the only house we could afford. And I was in this really struggling neighborhood, which we still love, because I don't know if you feel this way, but sometimes those kind of in-the-trenches experiences you have as young people make such a difference. And we often, you know, we had joked, we'd been so involved in the church in Philadelphia where we met and where we were both in grad school, that we were going to move to Provo or Orem, Utah. 
And I would be called as the hymn book coordinator and Lane would be called to sustain me. Because, you know, we just thought <laughs> this big, you know, Mormon rich area, we'd never have any opportunity to serve again. Well, we ended up moving into this really social economically impacted area. Mm. They needed us. And you love those whom you serve. You know, I mean, wow. I mean, we have relationships from that ward. It's been years now. And they needed us. They didn't have leadership and people were struggling and they were single parents. And it was just such a wonderful place. So anyway, I was called as bishop at 30 Two years after I got there, and I was still finishing a doctoral dissertation and trying to work. We finally got pregnant. We had our first child, and Elaine was working full-time for LDS Foundation. I mean, our lives were crazy. Uh, Peggy knew my mother. My mother was just—well, our mothers were friends, and they both loved music, and I think that really shaped us. And my mother expressed her testimony through her music, and it didn't matter where we lived, upstate New York or Pennsylvania or Tennessee— Mom would have these ward choirs that performed way above their pay grade. And she would always have these great Christmas and Easter programs. And the bishop would always just say, Marilyn, run with it. And Mom would put together a scriptural narration about Christmas or about Easter. And she would have the choir sing and musical numbers. And so I thought, this is my chance. I can, I can have a, an Easter program like Mom did. Well, as it turned out in 1996, Easter fell on Fast Sunday. And I asked my, my stake president if I could move testimony mean until the next week he says well there's no better way to celebrate Easter than bear testimonies of christ and i thought yeah but someone's going to get up and talk about the trip and someone's going to talk about the depression like, we know how it's open mic sunday right and there's no guarantee it's going to be just about easter so i thought well we'll have our easter program the week before now i actually knew nothing about liturgical history and calendars at the time as a young man i was really immersed in my latter-day saint church work starting my career but i'm planning this scripture narration all on my mother for this Easter program the week before. And lo and behold, I discovered this thing called Palm Sunday. Mm. I mean, I think I had heard it because my friends are mostly Catholic in, in Pittsburgh, but I'd never been to a Palm Sunday service. So I thought, well, I guess we should start this program with Jesus entering and waving palm branches. And wow, glory, Lord, and honor. That goes with that. And so I ended up having what was the first Palm Sunday program I'd ever heard about in the Larry Saint community. And because I wanted that testimony meeting on Easter Sunday to really be focused on Jesus and what he had done for us, I put in the bulletin. So after we had this great Palm Sunday program, I said, everyone in the bulletin is a little calendar for each day this week. And I've, I wouldn't do it. I would do it better now. But I had what I thought was the outline of, of the scriptures that treated what Jesus did in each of those days. I said, I want each of you in your individual study and in your families to read what Jesus did on each of these days a week and come and come to church on Sunday and be prepared to testify of what you learned and what you felt as you read about his last week and his experience in Gethsemane, his death on the cross and the resurrection. And it ended up being a great experience. If my stake president was right. We had a wonderful testimony. Did they do it? Did they? Yeah, did, they oh, did. Okay. They did. <laughs> anyway, I was converted to this idea of preparing for Easter. I thought, you know, you spend a whole month getting ready for Christmas or more, right? Halloween, they're already having Christmas music playing and things in stores. So I, I've, just among my family and friends, every year I'd send out these emails that just kept getting longer and longer each day from Palm Sunday to Easter. <laughs> Here's some scriptures, and this is what I think they mean. And this is before I was, I was still in classics. This is before I was in religion. And, hey, I found some music that goes with this day. And, hey, here's a beautiful piece of art. And somehow this got circulated way beyond my email list. And someone from Desert Book approached me and said, we've seen this stuff. We think that would be a great book. So I was invited to write God So Loved the World. So that's how that early treatment came about. Mm -hmm. Well, then fast forward to 2019, 2020, um, Trevin Hatch, who is the Ancient Studies and Religion Librarian at BYU, 
I'd gotten to know him as the engineers and studies coordinator because I'd always have him come to talk to my beginning students about research methods and sources. And I knew he was very well trained in, in the Jewish context of Jesus. And so we got to know each other and we were friendly, didn't know each other real well. He approached me and said, you know, I discovered your book, God's Love the World. I think it's out of print, but it's great. Have you ever thought about revising it? He said, you know, maybe we can get permission to reprint it, maybe add some other scholarship from some other writers. And I said, well, I don't know if Desert Book will do that. But we talked to Scott Esplin. He's now the dean, but he's the publication director of Religious Studies Center at BYU. He says, that sounds like a great idea. Well, I didn't want to just republish something I'd already done because it had been almost 10 years and I'd learned a lot more. Mm -hmm. And then COVID hit and I had nothing to do for a couple of years. (laughs) I was supposed to leave for Jerusalem in August of 2020 and didn't leave till April of 22. And I said, Travis, let's just rewrite it and expand it. And so that's how this book came about. It's a substantial revision and expansion of my original work. What excites you most about this one? What excites me most about this one is I think it's really, really user-friendly. Whether you're an individual who just wants to understand Jesus and his mission better, whether you're the parent of a young family and you want to introduce some family traditions that will root your children more firmly in the gospel, whether you're mature couple, whether you're a group of friends, I wanted it to be easy to use. Now, in God's Love the World, at the beginning of each chapter, I had a little chart with a bullet list of the scriptural episodes. But in my own family, as we tried to use that, we were jumping from John to Matthew to Luke, whatever. And so we talked to Scott Esplin, we said, what about reproducing the scriptural text at the beginning or of the chapters or chunks of text throughout the chapters? And he says, well, that could be good. We don't know how long much space will take, but just consider that. So we actually came up with the idea of a reader's edition. So each chapter begins with a short introduction and then a block of text. In this, the way it was finally published, it's, it's actually King James text, but it's a reader's edition, meaning it's in paragraphs rather than verses, and there are quotation marks so you can see dialogue. allowed me to do some other editorial things with it. Um, and we always use Mark. Mark is the oldest of our four Gospels. Most scholars agree on that. But not only is Mark the earliest stratum, the earliest layer of the gospel story, in many ways it's the most reader-friendly because it's a gospel of action. In fact, you can read the whole gospel of Mark aloud in like two or three hours, and it's very dramatic. Uh, I have a son. He's a big boy now, but he used to be a little boy. He has autism, but we'd always read a gospel between Christmas and Easter, and we'd ask him which gospel to read. Someone would always say, let's read Mark. And I thought it was like everyone else in the church is the shortest, right? Absolutely. So I finally yeah. asked him, I said, why do you want to read Mark? He said, because Jesus does stuff. <laughs> it's this gospel of action. So we have everything from Mark 8 through 16 in this text. And then, of course, my love of the gospel of John. John's probably the latest gospel, but it's the most theologically developed. And it has material the other gospels don't. So our reader's edition has almost all of Mark and most of John from 11 to 21. And then Matthew and Luke passages, when they add something the other ones don't have. So that's something I think is helpful, mm. is that you know people can sit down and read in a very user-friendly way um, those passages, and then read our discussion for five or six pages on those episodes. We then added something which we didn't have in my original book, which is what I call this day in the Christian tradition. So Palm Sunday in the Christian tradition, or Maundy Thursday in the Christian tradition, or Good Friday in the Christian tradition. 
a lot of Latter-day Saints don't really know how vital these days have been in practice for so many Christians for 2,000 years now. You know, they may have heard of people waving palm branches, but why and how they do that? And, and why do some people, you know, fast on Good Friday? I mean, some of these things just aren't there. Yeah. And then what we did is in between those very early things I did as a young bishop with my family and then a few suggestions I made in God's Love the World, between that and this book, I actually had a seasonal blog called Latter-day Saints Seasonal Materials where I just kind of dump all this stuff that I do for Advent and Christmas and Holy Week and Easter. And, you know, because my kids were growing, I started adding suggestions for children and whatever. And I thought, you know, I think that's what people would like in this book. I'm giving them the text, and that's what we want them to focus on, is what does the Scripture say about Jesus and what he did? And I'm really into music, so I can make some suggestions about hymns to sing or great music to listen to. But what else can you do? And so each chapter has at the end um, a section called Suggestions for Latter-day Saints. And then, just like I had an introduction, where I usually use a quote from a general authority or general officer, I usually have a quote at the end just to kind of anchor it firmly in the Restoration tradition. You know, having a quote from someone most of our readers will respect and accept at the beginning, I think kind of makes people, oh, I can read about Monday Thursday because, you know, Elder Holland said that's important what happened at the last summer in Gethsemane. <laughs> and then because this is about what we call marking sacred time, I end with marking Palm Sunday, marking Holy Monday, marking Good Friday. And I found another quote from a leader. So it kind of wraps it up. And actually, several of them came from President Nelson. President Nelson has just provided a lot of material in really rooting ourselves more in the mission of Jesus Christ. And by the way, just because inclusion is kind of my middle name, I reached out to general officers because I did, didn't want just to be prophets and apostles. I wanted a Relief Society general president. And I wanted a young women's general president. And I wanted to call her president so-and-so. <laughs> and I found some beautiful quotes from some of those sisters mm-hmm. And so that was something I had not done as much in God's Love the World. It's just really, even though this is really an exercise first in biblical scholarship and then some Christian history, I wanted to tether it, if that makes sense, to our own restoration tradition. Um, so did, you did some translating of your own, right? How, how does that match the King James passages? Yeah, so one of the things I mentioned as a classicist, you read a whole book and a whole author, and you get to know that style and that semantic range and how to translate it. And I realized that sometimes even in my own gospel scholarship, I would read that passage I was discussing in Greek, and then I would render it. And I thought, hmm, I need to use the skills I learned as a classicist and be a little bit more meticulous and responsible with that. And one of the other things I did during COVID is I taught a faculty seminar on the writings of John. And I have this long-term project as a commentary in John for the BYU New Testament commentary series. And so I finished my translation of John for this faculty seminar. I thought, well, I've got chapters 11 through 21 of John. I'm just going to go ahead and do Mark 8 through 16, you know, and I'm going to, because I wanted to make sure in my discussion of those passages that I wasn't making a big deal about the rendering of one Greek word, if that's not really the way Mark or John use that word throughout the text. So that was the first thing, why I did my own translation of the whole thing. The second reason was I didn't want to leave anything out. And I thought when you translate, it's a lot more laborious and, and not tedious because it's fun, but it, more careful. I want to make sure I read all the Passion Resurrection narratives in the original word for word and some things I hadn't commented on before in earlier writings. I thought, wow, I need to have a section on that. So I ended up with this translation. I had a really great assistant, Jackson Abhau, who's one of my 
engineers and studies students, and he reviewed it with me, and my co-author, Trevin, loved it. So at one point, we actually thought about using that as the reader's edition at the beginning of each chapter, because I will often ask students to say, how many of you served a foreign-speaking mission? You know, they'll raise their hands and say, how many of you, not the first time you read the Book of Mormon in Spanish or German, but the second time when you actually could read a little Spanish and German, found things in the text you had never seen before, and they all raised their hands, right? I said, sometimes when you look at a familiar text, even the King James Bible in another translation, you just read it differently, you see different things. And, you know, there's a line in the, the New Handbook of Instructions that talks about other translations are appropriate for academic purposes, which this kind of was, mm -hmm. and also for personal study, which is what I intended it for. So we toyed for a while with having my translation be the reader's edition. But then we thought, you know, this is going to get enough circulation. And my wife pointed out, yeah, there'll be 20% of the church will think, how cool, this great new translation. But she goes, think about your grandmother and your uncle. And they say, this isn't the King James. She said, you know, you run the risk of turning off as many people as you think you're going to gain. And one of the lines in the handbook about the current preferred use of the King James in the English-speaking church is, it provides us a common standard for class discussions. And so we decided to go ahead and, and use the King James, albeit reformatted as a reader's edition, for the published version. But in my discussion of those passages, I use my translation. Mm -hmm. And so it's marked, you know, author's translation. And I actually have provided that entire fresh translation on my website. So that if someone did want to use that for personal study, it would be available. So you've sort of touched on this a little bit, you know, that... Resources for Latter-day Saints. Mm -hmm. What do you think Latter-day Saints have been missing by not following some kind of liturgical calendar around this holiday? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. I have to approach that carefully, and I, and I want to do it in two ways. First of all, let's just say, what have we been missing? What have we been missing a lot of times is simply not careful attention to the scriptural text. I was actually following on Twitter just yesterday some Baptist and evangelical Christians who are starting to go to Episcopalian church, which seems like kind of an interesting shift. But several of them were saying, wow, you know, the liturgy provides the structure and everything's scriptural. And the focus is on the scripture and not on the preacher, the figure, right? And so I, I think that's the thing is we really want to get into scripture. So, so liturgy and what I think we've been missing are, are two different mm -hmm. questions, although they may be different sides of the same coin. I think we really need to immerse ourselves in the canonized scriptures constantly, but particularly when we're talking about Christmas and Easter, where the infancy narratives at Christmas time and the Passion Resurrection narratives at Holy Week and Easter, you know, provide us something that we can really relate with other Christians, number one, right? We may have lots of doctrinal differences and even some doctrinal differences about how the atonement of Christ works. But that is when we can join with other Christians and celebrate the miracle of Christ's birth and the miracle of his, his death and resurrection. And so, so I just think if we can get in the same scriptures everyone else looks uses, there's some connection. So there's there. value in just that universality there's of just other connecting, Christians. Connecting, building bridges okay. with other Christians. But I think in terms of our personal spiritual walk, you know, I mean, how we've all heard it growing up in the church or when we were converted to the church, read your scriptures daily. But it's not supposed to be just this slog rote thing we do. It's read the scriptures for a purpose, and you know. Holidays are a time when the purpose is presented to you on a silver platter. Gain a testimony that Jesus is the Son of God at Christmas time. It's a miracle he was born and we're glad he was born. Gain a testimony that he suffered, died, and rose again for you. And so that's what I think perhaps as individuals and families sometimes we've fallen short on is that we could really immerse ourselves 
And that's why we want to have this reader's edition, just put the scriptures right in front of people so they'd have something right there to read without flipping around. Mm. So I think we've been missing that. Now, there is this idea of sacred time. And in our tradition, we have that to an extent. I mean, we certainly have a lot of emphasis on the Christian Sabbath each week. And we have life patterns. So, you know, missions and time for marriages. and I mean, we have some things, baby blessings, funerals. But there is some great power in um, recounting things when they happened. Now, I remember as a young boy when we would have, you know, around a priest of restoration activities in the spring, you know, just kind of connecting it. In fact, um, if I can get back to the book for a moment, in the history of the various days in the Christian tradition, I based our discussion, uh, Trevin did a lot of the legwork on this, but the introductory parts I based on a Spanish nun from the late 4th century named Agaria who went on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land and wrote it down, and we have it. And she would say, I went to the Holy Land. And on Lazarus Saturday, the day before Palm Sunday, we went to Bethany and we saw the tomb and we read John 11. And everyone cheered when Lazarus came out of the tomb. And then we talked about Mary, you know, and anointing Jesus' feet. And then on Palm Sunday, we went up Mount of Olives and we got branches and we sang hymns. And this is what we read. And she just laid it out. And one of the reasons it was so powerful for Agaria was, sacred space and sacred time coincided. So you were at the spot or near the spots where these events happened. And then when we more or less think they happened, you recounted them. That's really powerful. That's really powerful. And that's not perhaps in our community tradition. I'm not saying that wards have to do this, or the general church should do that. But we do all kinds of things as individuals and families for holidays. You know, I prefer to call these traditions you can develop rather than rituals, because rituals, you know, what's the difference between a ritual and an ordinance? And I'm not saying the church should do things differently. But, you know, if you can have making and frosting Christmas cookies as a family tradition, then why not light an Advent candle, you know? And if you can have Easter eggs as a family tradition, then why not read and sing about Palm Sunday? So I, I think, you know, we hear more and more in the current church about a home-centered, church-supported approach to the gospel. So if it's going to be in the home, I think we root it in the things which I think everyone in the church feels secure with, scripture, sacred music, and prayer. And then individuals and families can say, and we might want to make hot cross buns, or we may want to do this, you know. That would be fun and, and bring us all together. So I think maybe that's something we kind of are missing. So... Eric, you're currently living in Jerusalem. How does the geography and history of that place inform this book? You know, we have one of the final field trips we do with our BYU Jerusalem students. It's called Christian Jerusalem, where we take them to some of the oldest Christian churches in the city. And one of the little tweaks I developed last summer was we would do the traditional Via Dolorosa walk. Now, as a scholar, I don't think that's actually where Jesus walked. I think it was on the other side of the city. But... For, you know, hundreds of years, that's where people have walked the route they thought from the condemnation of Jesus to the place where he was crucified and buried. And then we would go to an important Roman Catholic church called St. Savior's by the New Gates. So it's kind of in the northwest corner of the old city. And I took them around that church and showed them what our Catholic friends called the 14 Stations of the Cross. Now, my students have just walked the Via Dolorosa where those stations are marked. And even though very few, if any of them, read Latin and couldn't read the Latin inscriptions in the church, I'd say, what's that scene? Can you tell from the picture or from the sculpture? And so we talked about how so many Christians could not make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, but they could have the Stations of the Cross in their church, their parish church. 
So on Good Friday, they could still do that. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm living in Jerusalem, and I'll tell you, it's a wonderful thing to be coming down the Mount of Olives. And I think, Peggy, you did this, waving palm branches and singing Hosanna with 2,000 other Christians. And it's a wonderful thing to be at a Monday service, Thursday service, and see people washing feet or be at the garden tomb at daybreak. But a lot of people can't do that. And so part of what I kind of wanted to do with this, in fact, in the introduction, I say, let's join Jesus in a scriptural journey through his final days and hours. And the idea was, you know, immerse yourself in that. And you may be living in Springville, Utah, but in the time you're spending during Holy Week reading and maybe singing or maybe talking with your family or friends and praying, you can be walking that walk. So it was this kind of idea that with the art and some of the pictures we use, give readers a sense of place. But what I'm really trying to do is focus people on the scriptural text. And, you know, one of the, you know, people always ask me what I think about The Chosen. I think The Chosen is great. I have to take off my historians and, and biblical scholar hat when I watch it. And every time the Romans do anything, I want to scream as a Roman historian. But I love The Chosen otherwise. <laughs> but it's still not the same as reading the scriptures. And I'll tell you why. Think of a great novel that you loved and whether you really liked the movie version. See, reading is, a, rare. More, reading <laughs> yeah. is a more active engagement with the story than watching a video or movie because your imagination is brought to bear, right? And so my sense is I love The Chosen, but what I want really people to do is read the Gospels and not just read them because I have to read a half hour for seminary. Read them and let the Spirit open the, this, your eyes, your spiritual eyes, and let yourself be transported that way. Um, so how did you settle on the art in, in this book? So, you know, initially, when we first approached the Religious Studies Center, it was going to be a text-only book. And that made me a little sad, because I had used a lot of art in God's Love the World and its companion volumes, Good Times, Great Joy, and the Miracles of Jesus, because when I had been in humanities classes and comparative literature, I taught issues Civ, and I love art. I'd picked all the art for those books. And I don't even remember quite how it happened, but little by little, um, I think the Study Center realized, you know what? Art would really add something to this. So I picked about 80% of the art. Some of the other ones were found by our book designer. She was just amazing, um, Carmen Cole. Um, I went through and did database searches and even just plain old internet searches for every episode and looked at every image I could find. And just made this huge spreadsheet of art. Now, there's some I already loved. You know, I know I like Bloch, Carl Bloch. Um, I use a, in a lot of my illustrated books Tissot. Not because I actually like Tissot that much, but he's one of the only artists who actually painted every scene of Jesus' life. So there's some episodes you can't find anything else. Mm. But, you know, we we discovered some some Russian masters and some other things that I hadn't seen before. And we wanted to highlight some Latter-day Saint art. You know, I love Kirk Richards. Kirk's been to the Holy Land. That's an inspiration. There's some other familiar, you know, he's not, he's Seventh-day Adventist, but, you know, Harry Anderson, there's some pieces. I wanted to put some familiar art that Latter-day Saints have seen in their correlated materials so that this wouldn't seem so unfamiliar. But then we wanted, you know, just like I want to have general officers in here, I wanted to have female artists so we found some Minerva Tigers and Liz Lemon Swindle. So we want to make sure that women artists were highlighted as well. We didn't get as much ethnic diversity as I like, but if you know sacral cubism, we got a piece of that in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that was wonderful. Jorge and, or, uh, and then in yeah. some of the um, pictures, we ended up doing more art than pictures because it was such an investment to do a full color book. 
And even though I had a lot of pictures of the Holy Land scenes I wanted to use, they thought the art would be more impactful. But we did have pictures. And I went on some commercial databases and bought rights for some things that I really felt strongly about. Um, so, for instance, on the Good Friday, celebrating Good Friday in the Christian tradition section, I have a picture of two Coptic priests, Egyptian priests, reading the last minutes of Jesus in the Holy Sepulchre. And then in a, there's this wonderful tradition in the Orthodox community called Holy Fire between Good Friday and Easter morning. And so I wanted to picture holy fire, but I found an image of Ethiopian women mm-hmm. dressed all in white with the candles. Wow. And then I found a picture of Pakistani Christians celebrating Easter morning. Now, Christianity is very tiny in Pakistan, and it's very endangered. But to see these mostly women and children who were literally risking their lives to celebrate Easter. I thought, wow, I don't want this to be, nothing about, nothing's wrong with Wasatch Front white bread. I am Wasatch Front white bread, right? I'm a seventh generation Larry Saint. I sing in the Tabernacle Choir. I'm as Mormon as you can get. <laughs> but there are a lot of other Latter-day Saints and there are a lot of other Christians. And I just, to the extent that we could, we chose some art that would be new and inclusive. So I have to ask you, because this will jump out at, at Latter-day Saints in the bookstore. The cover shows an angel with wings. Yeah, yeah. What can you say about that? <laughs> well, you know, there was a time when Latter-day Saint publishers didn't like to have angels with wings, mostly because of our theology that mm-hmm. the, the wings are, are symbolic of the ability to move, act, etc., as the Doctrine and Covenants calls us. But, you know, I had used some Carl Block pictures, paintings in some of my earlier books, including the very famous one of Christ in Gethsemane with wings. And that had made it in some correlated materials like the ensign later, the Liahona. Um, this Fran Schwartz, which is Agony in the Garden, um, not only is it a different representation of it, it's a very tender picture. I mean, Jesus is really in pain and weeping, and the angel, almost motherly, can't tell the gender, but almost motherly, mm-hmm. is embracing him and has a hand on his head and the chin on the hand. It's just so intimate. Um, I had heard through back channels that this was a famous, a favorite painting of some influential people in the church. So anyway, I, I thought, uh, this isn't going to be a problem. This isn't going to be a problem. And especially since one of the purposes of this book is to help connect us to other tradition, Christians, traditions, history, and art. It's okay to say the wings are symbolic. You know, photorealism is not my art. You know, so anyway, yeah, it will jump out at them, but... Rest assured, lots of people saw this, and if someone had thought it was a problem, um, <laughs> I have had people tell me before when I shouldn't do things, and no one said I shouldn't do that. <laughs> um, okay, so what does your family do before Easter, and what if a family has small children? Yeah, and I had to, so one, one of the things we did, we made suggestions at the end of each day, at the end of each chapter, creating it each day. But we actually have an appendix, Appendix D, <laughs> celebrating Holy Week, a family, a resource, a resource guide for Larry Saints, where we've actually collated those all. So you can just turn to that appendix to Palm Sunday, and it has episodes, bullet list of the scriptures to read. And then it has ideas, suggestions for Larry Saints, bullet points, and then activities for small children, bullet points. Here's a list of, you know, 20 good pieces of art for that day, and here are 10, 15, 20 pieces of music. So the resources are there. I actually drew upon other people's legwork for the small children because my children, 
Well, my family was a little different than some families. My daughter was very precocious and my son was autistic. So we didn't do some of the things that you normally do with small children. But there were some Latter-day Saints who had written some really nice things for small families. So I just cited them and distilled their ideas for the small children. But for my family, going back to that question, Peggy, what we've always done is start first with Scripture, the Word of God. We read the Scriptures aloud. Sometimes we have discussions, and if you don't mind, remind me to come back to Wednesday, a day people don't think about, because that's a discussion that's very tender in our family. We sing, because we love to sing. We put up art, and we pray. So, you know, I don't think uh, any Latter-day Saint would find anything wrong with doing those things. Hmm. Um, Even though when we're in Jerusalem, we happily go to Mass, or we happily go to Orthodox Holy Fire, we happily do a Palm Sunday procession, I think it's great to celebrate. You know, my son, Sammy, uh, some of you know the story. I have a son with autism who's actually a service volunteer while we're in Jerusalem. And, you know, I remember when we used to go to Episcopalian churches, and they'd say, open table, open communions. Do we take that? And I'd say, Sam, this is dad's choice. I pray with my friends. I read scriptures with my friends. And I sing with my friends. And I didn't want to disparage, you know, their authority or lack thereof. And I said, in respect for our priesthood and our sacrament, I don't. So, you know, I think there are lots of ways where you can celebrate and even worship with other people without compromising your loyalty to the rest of Anyway, um, so that's what we do. Uh, should I go back to Wednesday? Yeah. Okay, so there's this passage in Mark and Matthew echoes that parallels it about the woman who anoints Jesus' head, which may or may not be the same story as Mary of Bethany anointing Jesus' feet. I talk about that in the book. And it's this interesting scene. She comes in and she anoints his head. And of course, you know, the disciples are upset. And John, it's Judas who's upset. But Mark and Matthew, the disciples are upset, wasting all this precious ointment. We should sell it, give it to the poor. And Jesus says, this woman is preparing me for my burial. Wherever this gospel is preached, we should tell this story. Well, there are a number of things going on here. First of all, it seems to be that this woman had an understanding, an intimation, perhaps a revelation that Jesus was about to die for her. That's what the atonement was. It wasn't to be a worldly king. She wasn't anointing him as the new Christ to take over and kick the Romans out. She was anointing him as the suffering savior. In which case, she had a better understanding of what was going on than the male disciples did at that. But there's that line. Jesus said, wherever we preach this gospel, you've got to tell the story. And I thought, I've never heard this story once in Sunday school. I've never heard this story once the Wednesday before Easter. But Jesus said we're supposed to do it. So I said, dang it, in our family, we're going to read the story every Wednesday. Well, you have to have some application. You just don't read things randomly. And I thought I had stumbled upon something about, you know, here's a woman with the testimony. Well, I was reading um, a letter attributed to Paul, 2 Timothy, and it talks about how Timothy, the faith he had was first in his grandmother Lois, his mother. And he was praised for having faith that his mother and grandmother had given him. I thought, that's the key. Our family tradition is we're going to read the story who had a testimony about just who Jesus was, the Son of God, but that he had come to die for her. And we're going to talk about other women of Christ who planted and cultivated faith. Peggy knows where I'm going with this. I would not be the person I am without my mother. You know, she planted the seeds of faith, and she not only taught me about Jesus, showed me by her life how she lived. So we go around the room. We start with the youngest and go to the oldest, and we talk about a woman who has strengthened their faith. And, you know, when Sam was little, it was always his specialist, his aide, his helper. And my daughter, of course, would always talk about her mother. And Elaine would talk about her mother, her mother-in-law. And I would always talk about my mother, my grandmother. Now, that's a really sweet tradition. 
It's remembering a woman who did a wonderfully comforting and important thing for Jesus. It's teaching the point that, wow, women can be prophetesses and powerful conduits of religious truth and testimony. And it's connecting it to us by saying, who are the women in my life I want to honor? Now, that's a huntsman family tradition. It's not a ritual. It's not something the whole church should do. But I think families could probably figure out for themselves what worked for them. Eric Huntsman, thanks for joining us today. Well, you're welcome. Sorry I talked so much. You probably didn't get to ask half your questions. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks to Dave Noyce. Always a pleasure. Happy Easter, everyone. And yes. to producer Christopher Samuels, we remind our listeners they can keep up on all the happenings in and about the church by subscribing to the Salt Lake Tribune's free Mormonland newsletter. Just go to sltrib.com to sign up when we'll talk again next time on Mormonland.